This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The sort of number one thing is building emotional awareness. It's like a muscle. Sometimes I'll I'll give people like a chart of emotions, primary, secondary, and tertiary emotions, and I'll have them carry it around with themselves. And just like, you know, a couple times a day, look at the chart and actually tune into what am I feeling and what is the body sensation. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll discuss meditation and sleep. We'll learn about fawning as a response to trauma. We'll find out how to recreate restaurant dishes at home. And lastly, we'll explore the power of boundaries. But first, a little bit of business. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of The Tonic Magazine. The Tonic is published six times a year and is delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. It's also available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. And if you miss it, you can also read The Tonic online at thetonic.ca. Hey, if you like The Tonic Talk Show, I know you'll love The Tonic Magazine. Stephanie Kirsta is a master's level mental health clinician with over a decade of experience in emergency medicine, community crisis, and private clinical practices. An academic and researcher, she holds teaching appointments at a number of universities and colleges, namely Wilfrid Laurier University, McMaster University, Humber College, CAMH, and Durham College. She's also published research in a number of peer-reviewed scientific journals. She's one of the co-founders of Home, North America's largest modern meditation studio. And most recently, in January, Home launched the world's first virtual reality meditation studio on the Oculus Quest platform. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Always nice to have new guests. And today we're going to talk about the connection between meditation and sleep. And I guess my first question to you is, what sort of sleep issues are you seeing with the people that you're treating? Absolutely, that's a great question. And I always say sleep is one of the most important things that we should be talking about. And, you know, the reason why is that most of us are either not sleeping enough or the sleep that we are getting is not very good sleep. And so in my practice, I treat insomnia and I do see, I treat mental health as well. And I do see sleep is really connected to so many of our mental health issues and so many of our stress levels. And so I'm seeing, you know, differing levels of insomnia where people can't fall asleep or where they can't stay asleep, um, anxiety induced insomnia, or just not feeling rested in general. So has COVID sort of changed the type of sleep problems that we're having? Like, are are people more anxious and therefore waking up? Has it increased the amount of problems that you've seen? Or or is it more more or less the same? That's a good question. Like, clinically, we haven't seen any kind of correlated studies yet. But anecdotally, what I've been seeing in my practice, certainly, and, you know, just kind of hearing hearing from society and hearing from people that 
a lot more people are experiencing sleep issues for a number of reasons. So certainly there's a collective anxiety that has impacted people's ability to sleep. So whether it be not being able to fall asleep because the brain is kind of on that spiral before bed and you just can't shut your brain off before falling asleep or not being able to stay asleep. The other thing I'm seeing too, and especially when with lockdown in general, um, less activity. So, you know, we're not getting out as much, maybe we're not exercising as much. And all of that kind of pent up energy has impacted people's ability to sleep well. Yeah, uh, I get that. And, you know, this show, we talk about the interconnectedness of your health, you know, how sleep plays into diet and diet plays into exercise and, you know, exercise plays into mental health. And, you know, mental health obviously reconnects with sleep, but they're all interconnected. They're all interconnected. And, you know, even in my clinical practice, I see that all the time and I talk about it all the time is that the mind and the body are so, so, so interconnected. And, you know, the good part of that is that we know that there are a lot of lifestyle issues that really can positively impact our mental health. So we know that, you know, if people get into a bit better of a sleeping pattern, if people are starting to, you know, engage in some really light physical activity, if we're, you know, getting more water and getting more nutrients, we do see an impact on our mental health and vice versa. Generally, when our mental health is being impacted or we're under a really stressful time, most of those systems are the first to go. So we generally don't sleep when we're really stressed out or we generally have a not-so-good diet when we're really stressed out. We, we don't have self-care anymore when we have really big deadlines. And so there is such an interconnectedness. Okay, so that being said, uh, one of your expertise is meditation. How does meditation mm-hmm. fit into this sort of relationship we have between our our mind and body and our health. Absolutely. Meditation is an incredible practice. It's an ancient practice. It's been a practice that's been around forever. And, you know, back, like, just kind of giving you a bit of a history, my co-founder and I, we both found meditation through the clinical research. So as clinicians in the mental health field, looking at some of the clinical benefits of meditation. So seeing the impact on mood, on anxiety, on depression, on sleep, and then also seeing the impact on physical health. So some of the early, really groundbreaking studies around meditation and mindfulness were studies done on people who were had cardiac events. And looking at meditation and mindfulness as part of their cardio rehab practice and looking at the long-term benefits of that. And so we started kind of weaving it into our clinical practice. And again, with our clients seeing incredible benefits, um, really, I would say from the top of our heads to the tips of our toes and everything in between. And then also as clinicians practicing it ourselves and then also seeing the benefits. So absolutely, you know, when we see the noted, um, like the literature on the benefits of meditation, we see it from mind, body, sleep, mood, you know, creativity, focus. It really runs the whole gamut. Can you can you explain a little bit more about uh, how meditation can help promote healthy sleep patterns and habits? Yeah, um, and it's actually really interesting because meditation and mindful practices are considered they're a, a bit of like a medical directive for the treatment of insomnia. And so when someone is getting treatment for insomnia, one of the first things that they're encouraged to do is a progressive muscle relaxation where they, you know, slowly from the 
when they're lying in bed, kind of squeezing and releasing their feet, their legs, their stomach, um, their hands, their arms, their face, and working its way back down. So really kind of methodically and systematically squeezing and releasing and being really mindful and focusing on the breath. So it does work really well. And kind of a Cole's Notes version of how it tends to work for sleep is that when we are around in our day, so when we're kind of like alert and moving from deadline to deadline or social event to social event, we're tapped into our sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of our alert and our wake system. That's when all systems are going. That's when we're kind of just functioning. We're aware of everything. We're noticing everything. In order to fall into a sleep, we need to tap into our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest. So I always say the best way to know if you're in your parasympathetic is, or think about it is the last time you had a massage, if your stomach started to growl, generally that means that you're in your parasympathetic response because that's when those more restorative kind of systemic patterns tend to happen. And so many of us, where a lot of our sleep issues come from, and this is oversimplifying it, is we go, 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 and then we fall into bed at a certain time and we can't turn the brain off and we can't turn our system off. Where meditation can be really helpful is it's it's that little bridge from our sympathetic nervous system to our parasympathetic nervous system. Are there different types of meditative practices given the time of day? So would you do the same practice at night that you would during the day? There are different types of practices. Like there's lots of different meditation practices. I would say more kind of energizing practices, more practices based on them, you know, intention setting for your day, more really active breath work sessions, more Um, sessions based on kind of like focus and concentration, those are generally better suited for the morning. So really energizing practices, whereas there are certain practices that are generally really slow, restorative, visualization, a body scan, or a yoga nidra class, which is actually, it, it translates to yogic sleep. Those are really suited for, for sleep meditation. What does a healthy sleep regime look like to you and your expertise? So the best Kind of the, my tips that I generally give clients is, you know, having somewhat of a set sleep and wake time. I always say somewhere along the lines of when we grew up from when we were babies, we took over our bodies, but essentially our our bodies really like the routine that we had when we were babies. So if you think about, you know, when you were a baby, you'd have your bath time before bed, you'd have, your, you know, your bedtime, your wake time. And then somewhere along the line, we've kind of missed our sleep routine or we kind of, you know, have stepped away from that sleep routine. And so what I generally like to have people do is have a bit of a loose sleep routine. So have a bit of a sleep time um, and awake time. Roughly just kind of keep it around the same time. Our body really likes to know that. And then do things that are really soothing before bed. So, you know, a hot bath or, you know, a chamomile tea or a really soothing herbal tea. Try to dim the lights. Make your bedroom cooler. Try to stay off electronics. I know it's very hard, but even just like half an hour to an hour, you'll start to notice a difference. Um, Those are generally things that I like because all of those things together cue our brain to start creating melatonin. And melatonin is what we need for sleep. And so anything that we can do to encourage our body or to kind of tell our body it's time for sleep, it's really helpful. Okay. I'm going to ask a personal question for me. So I do not have trouble falling asleep. I can fall asleep anywhere. I've been known to fall asleep like on cement. Uh, oh my gosh. It's, it, I'm, a, I'm a good at falling asleep. I am terrible at staying asleep. Are there any 
sort of meditation or mindfulness practices that might help you if you wake up in the middle of the night in sort of anxious moods or, or you can't get back to sleep? Yeah, absolutely. So that muscle, that progressive muscle relaxation is a great one. So that's one thing that I would say is just try to get into a bit of a progressive muscle relaxation. So again, just lying down in your bed, um, squeezing and releasing at about a count of five, and then just move up your body like methodically and then move back down. Really, really helpful. The other thing that can be helpful too is to just kind of really focus on your breathing. So really, really simply, just kind of hands on your belly, just really just focusing on feeling your belly fill up with air and then release down, really just focusing on counting that breath. The big thing when you wake up in the night is to try it, like do not pick up the phone, don't turn on the TV. We want you to stay in your bed. We want you to be able to not have those external stimulants that will encourage you to be more awake. Another thing that's really helpful is there's different meditation apps um, or an audiobook or something like that. Nothing too interesting. So I always say like an audiobook is good, but nothing too, too interesting that's going to get, that's going to keep you up, but something that you can do to kind of bring your focus onto something else. Or for example, like the spoken book, The Shining or something like that. You don't want anything scary. <laughs> okay. So you have, you have home meditation studio. Yeah. What can people do to uh, augment their meditation practice if they can't get to your studio? So they can try a practice at home. We also just launched um, a virtual reality app, which is um, it's our home meditation studio, but it's on the Oculus Quest. So that's something that they can do as well. And really what we did with that is we brought the magic of the studio into, into the headset. So you don't have to come to the studio. So you're meditating with our instructors. We have on-demand sessions, which are in you know pretty incredible backgrounds. But then we also have drop-in classes in our studio so you'll actually step into our studio with an instructor you'll be able to see on a board other people who are meditating alongside you and you'll be able to experience the same meditations that we have in studio if you don't have an oculus um, lots of different apps are great there's lots of different audio meditation apps my key if you are just new to meditation would be to start small consistency is more important than length when first starting out and so I always encourage people to start with like a three to five minute meditation per day the key is to try and do it more often than the length of time that you're doing it. I always encourage a heavily guided meditation to start because it helps to keep our brain from jumping around. I call it monkey mind and um, and get really comfortable. So, you know, I know many people think that you have to have, you know, really perfect posture and be seated. Really what I encourage to, to start off with meditation is make sure you're as comfortable as possible and you have something that's heavily guided. And I always like to encourage bringing in some sort of um, tactile thing as well. So either holding on to a crystal or, you know, a couple beads. Anytime we bring in different senses, it can help us slip into a meditative state a little bit better. That's good advice. And and what sort of environment? Like, do, do you need sort of a room without windows? Or, you know, I presume you don't want like the TV playing in the background. But like, uh, what would you recommend? What, what's an ideal space to meditate in? Easy answer is any space that you are meditating in okay, fair is, enough. is an ideal space. But really, again, trying to minimize those distractions. Because anytime you have a distraction, you're just making it harder for yourself. So trying to turn the television off. Um, windows are great if it's a morning meditation because it can be really energizing. 
But again, if it's a bedtime meditation and you're trying to meditate for sleep, I would say the best place to meditate is in your bed. The beauty of the app, why I love the app so much is I always meditate at home. I have a very rambunctious little puppy and, uh, you know, I'll be meditating. He'll come in the room getting kisses all over the face, which I love, but really hard to stay in a meditative space or, you know, my husband's walking around or something like that. And so what I love about the app is that you have that visual cue by having the headset and you're immediately placed into an immersive space. So, you know, my house could be a mess. I could be in the middle of my kitchen and I wouldn't know. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. That was Stephanie Kerstow. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss fawning on the tonic. Echinoforce by A. Vogel is clinically proven to prevent and treat multiple virus strains. Made with fresh, organic, GMO-free plants, it's 10 times more effective than dried echinacea products. Safe and effective for the whole family, including pregnant and nursing women. Order Echinoforce online at avogel.ca and get 20% off with promo code TONIC20. Echinoforce is also available where natural health products are sold. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Tracy Sagratti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at sagratiyoga.com, Yoga on Facebook, or at Tracy Sagrati on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Today, we are going to talk about a specific response to trauma. Yeah. It's referred to as fawning. Fawning, yeah. 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 And I felt like it was so important to bring this up. Um, you know, for so many reasons, but especially because it's like, like in the psychological literature, it's uh, it's really a, a newer subcategory of what happens when we are overwhelmed by a stressful response. Right. So I know some of the traditional ones that we've yeah. discussed from time to time, but but what are what are the typical responses to trauma that people might be familiar with? Yeah. So and let me just say, like, uh, I, I'm going to define trauma as anything that overwhelms your capacity to cope. So you're in a situation, you're completely overwhelmed, and so you'll respond by doing one of the following four things. You'll either fight because you feel like you're under threat. You'll run away, so that's flight. You'll freeze, which is kind of a very primal animalistic response. Or you'll go into something that's much more complex, and and the sort of street term for it is fawning. Um, but clinically, you might call it please and appease. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so let's focus. We're focusing on fawning. So yes. let's unpack that for a bit. Where do you want to start? Okay, so um, I think the most important thing to know is that. 
Uh, first of all, it's a survival response, and it often comes as a result of sort of complex interpersonal trauma. So trauma that happens in relationships and yep. often often with regard to like your childhood, right? So adverse childhood events. And and what basically happens is the individual really learns to survive an environment, right? And sometimes sometimes when I'm working with clients, I, I ask them like, what was the emotional climate of your home growing up? Like if you think about the climate of something. Yeah. Um, and so, so the person learns to survive the climate by sacrificing themselves in order uh, to have harmony, right? In order to feel safe. Right. And so so to do that, you have to be hyper vigilant. And that means you have to track everybody else's body language, uh, their tone of voice. And you almost have to react before they do. And and you do this uh, by working really hard to make sure that there's no explosions, there's no eruptions. And so in order to preempt that chaos, you're just constantly micromanaging your environment. And and so you in order to do that you have to abandon your own feelings, you have to abandon your own bodily sensations, uh, because you're working so hard to make sure that everybody else is steady and calm. It sounds like uh, the circumstances would be sort of like long-term abuse, right? Is that what we're talking about? People who suffer from like spousal abuse or parental abuse, that sort of thing? Okay, like I think you're going to the end of the polarity. And, okay. and to be honest, this happens even in cases that you might sort of describe as more mild. Okay. So, okay, well, this is the big one where there's inconsistent responses. So the child sometimes uh, receives love and affection. Sometimes it's a totally neglectful or dismissive response. And sometimes it's an explosive response, right? And so if, and, and definitely there's, a, there's an interaction between the temperament, right? So you might be a person who's, say, more sensitive. And, and so having that inconsistent response would be really confusing. And, and so if the child felt like they kind of had to walk on eggshells, right? right? So we all kind of know what that feels like when sure. there's somebody that's unpredictable. Yeah, vol volatility. It's volatility. That's exactly perfect word. Thank you. When you have that and you have to walk on eggshells, this is one of those things that shows up. And, you know, obviously it shows up to varying degrees. And for sure, you're right. Like if it's long term, if there's physical abuse, if there's sexual abuse, of course, right? This is This is definitely the picture that shows up. But you know, the, the reason I wanted to talk about it today on your show is because in my experience, Jamie, I see this particular thing very frequently. Yeah, that, that's not surprising, right? Like, I, yeah. to me, it's to me, it's like a power dynamic thing, right? Like, exactly. Somebody who would choose this coping mechanism yeah. probably does not have power in the relationship, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay, and so, so I'm so glad that you said the word choice there because what happens, like if you think back to sort of developmental biology, and, and you know, like we're both parents, right? Mm -hmm. uh, kids, uh, their frontal lobe, like the part of their brain that can sort of choose, it's just not online until they're really in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And so... At that time, they don't really have a choice. It's just pure survival, right? Yep. And And because there is the power dynamic, that's the other thing you said that's important, the only way to survive, they, like what, what's going to happen if they fight? What's going to happen if they run away? Like they don't have yeah. those choices. Right. So the only way to survive is to actually become this 
please and appease or, or do this fawning behavior. That's actually going to allow them to be successful. So what happens to an adult who automatically moves to that choice, right? Like, so yeah. if that's their go-to response, what happens? Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's pretty unconscious. And I would say that the first thing that I see and I'm really looking for is um, a person who's kind of a yes person. They, they have difficulty saying no, even when the thing that they're doing sort of inconveniences them mm-hmm. or hurts them. Uh, and, and this can look like, you know, doing behaviors where to avoid offending anyone or to avoid uh, being criticized. They might work really hard to make themselves likable as a reflex. Okay. And, and I, you know, I know I have friends like this. Uh, they, they might want approval, stability and love so badly that they will really avoid difficult conversations as a way to secure those things. Right. So, so again, this is that, that sacrificing the self. The next thing, and this is, this is trickier to unearth, um, sometimes it's called disappearing emotions. Mm-hmm. And this is where the person really hides, manipulates, or ignores their own emotions in order to keep the status quo. Right, yeah. And so that can look like um, a really good example is just like keeping secrets in families, like not bringing things up. When somebody else is angry or disappointed uh, with the person, it feels literally unbearable, right? So they will really do anything to just make it stop. And, and because they're withholding sort of painful emotions or, or sacrificing themselves, um, the anger over that is often turned inwards. So they, they can tend towards, you know, self-loathing sure. or just harsh self-criticism. Yeah. Like and and, and well, one more thing, like yeah. the, the last thing is just like loss of identity, right? So if you're, you're a chameleon, essentially, like in order to be like this, you have to be a chameleon. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happens over time, especially the longer it's been going on, is that uh, it's very hard to be authentic. Um, and so that person um, will sort of, sort of, I guess, try to ingratiate themselves to others. Uh, give compliments, over-apologize. And, and so that's something, even if I'm working with someone, it's it's something I'm looking for, right? If that behavior is happening right away, I know that they don't feel safe and that this is their, their method of feeling safe. Okay, so you've worked with, with people who you've identified as, as sort of yeah. being at, at this, having these responses. So yeah. how do you break the cycle? What do you do? Yeah, so I would say the the sort of number one thing is building emotional awareness. It's like a muscle. Because if you're used to ignoring your bodily sensations or your feelings, that first part is going to be really hard. It's, it's the first step. And sometimes I'll, I'll give people like a chart of emotions, primary, secondary, and tertiary emotions. And for all listeners, you can just Google this. Uh, there's tons of charts on the internet and I'll have them carry it around with themselves and just like, you know, a couple times a day, like breakfast, lunch or dinner, look at the chart and actually tune into what am I feeling and what is the body sensation? Hmm. Uh, because you can't start making choices like you don't know you're over your limits and unless you know what your feelings are and what feels like over your limits. Yep. Um, so it's like building emotional vocabulary. And then the the second thing that I do is... Uh, teach them, once they've got sort of a sense of the emotional vocabulary, is teach them to locate themselves in, in any given moment when they're with other people. 
So the trigger is going to be with other people, right? right? And, and so these people often like to be by themselves because it's less work. And so being around other people is going to be problematic because it's going to trigger this behavior. And so then we practice, okay, how am I feeling right now before I respond to this person in this fawning way? And then just avoiding, avoiding, so just, you know, moving towards uncomfortable conversations and then processing those uncomfortable conversations either by talking, you know, talking to me or journaling and, and understanding what about those events triggers feelings of abandonment and fear. So that, that's kind of the Coles Notes version of how to treat it. And it's simple, but obviously, you know, it takes work. Yeah, I, I would think as people develop more of their own power, I guess, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. That, so you remove yourself from a situation, perhaps you can't, but mm-hmm. but having more dominion, I guess, over mm-hmm. over your life would probably move you forward, wouldn't it? Like Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, like, I would even say that this is autonomy. Right. Autonomy. And, and you know, I think a huge piece of it, too, Jamie, is if I was to say, like, what it is that happens in the relationship. It's being with another person, being able to say what you think or say what you feel without trying to manage their emotional response. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. What do you want to talk about the next time you're on? I want to talk about perfectionism. Ooh, perfect. That was Tracy Socrati. We have to take a short break, uh, but when we return, we'll discuss recreating restaurant food on The Tonic. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for The Tonic magazine for many years. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So one of the things that you and I like to do, sorry, we're not going to, it's not going to be TMI type situation. <laughs> what, one of the things that we like to do is, is to see if, you know, we can recreate dishes that we've eaten in restaurants, which is, which is a bit of a game, right? It is. It is. And you have to have an open mind and be a bit adventurous to do it. Why, why in God's name would somebody want to do this? Why not, why not just go to the restaurant and, and eat the food? And sometimes that is the answer. You know, yeah. there's certain things where you say, kids, don't try this at home. Yep. But sometimes it, it's fun to try to do it yourself. Um, you can't make it to the restaurant. It was something you ate 
when you were traveling, so you can't just get back there. Maybe it was so good that you, you know, it was kind of expensive, but you want to incorporate that into your regular repertoire. You kind of think, well, I can make this at home and everybody would love it, so I'm just going to do it. If you have a positive experience, why not try to recreate that positive experience, um, assuming that trying to do so through cooking would be positive, you know, and not frustrating. Like, sure, why not try it? Yeah, I, I think you have to sort of have to have some baseline skills, right? Like if, if you really don't like to cook or you're not very good at it, this is probably a tough assignment. But if you have some baseline experience or maybe you can read a recipe, which we'll come to in a moment, maybe maybe this could work. So how would you recommend that somebody try this? So you've had a dish at a restaurant and you want to try and make it at home. What do you, what do, you do? One easy way is to just ask the recipe. Ask the restaurant for the recipe. I mean, just ask them because sometimes they'll share the recipe itself. Um, you know, maybe the server at the time isn't going to give you the recipe, but if you email the restaurant or call them and say, I just love this. Could you tell me how you made it? They might share the recipe. And I did that a number of years ago when we were at Sahav restaurant in Philadelphia and we had this frozen lemonade, had vodka in it, but it was lemon and mint and something. It was just so good. I thought, wow, you know, we're not going to be in Philadelphia and this is so good. I want to have this. And I emailed the restaurant and they sent me the recipe. And well, it's flattering. I mean, it, depending on the restaurant, they may feel they don't want to share their recipes, but uh, it doesn't hurt to try. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to ask. You know, there's, exactly. really, there's really no downside. The only thing I would say is like, I'm, I'm not a trusting person, as you know, like I would think that maybe they leave out a key ingredient, but actually that with that particular recipe that you're referencing, they didn't. And we were able to replicate it pretty well. That's right. Now, sometimes restaurants actually have cookbooks because many more restaurants have, have been producing cookbooks. And so they may, in fact, have a cookbook and that recipe may be in it. Um, I also find often I can Google a recipe if, that, I, that I've had that might be popular and somebody else has tried to recreate it. So, you know, you might not even have to do the work yourself. Uh, It's amazing to me how often I can find a recipe, whether it's the actual recipe, because sometimes the the chef might have some reason to talk about the recipe and promote it, or somebody else is trying to recreate it, and that will definitely give you a baseline. Right. And and you mentioned a moment ago that that there are cookbooks that have been derived not by individuals, but by establishments. And, you know, I find that those are the most hit-and-miss cookbooks. Because chefs in restaurants are are cooking for a specific purpose, right? They're they're trying to make the same dish many many times a day, and so it's it's about process for them, which is very different than the way a home cook cooks, right? Yes, I have been disappointed in the past by some restaurant cookbooks where I, you know, I I think it should be good. I'm following the recipe, and it just is okay. And I know that it's not a reflection on the dish itself as the restaurant makes it, but it's something in the translation is not the same. It, it definitely helps when uh, the restaurant engages a cookbook writer to help uh, to help do that, because um, it's not the same. Being a chef in a restaurant and being a cookbook author is not the same thing. You know, the recipe has to be clear, and they you know it needs to be tested to make sure it works for the home cook. Uh, there are some. We have the Jelena cookbook. That's G J E L I N A, which is a restaurant in L A. Which I have not been to, that you have, and we've spoken about it on this show before because it's just so good. 
you know, the restaurant, as I understand it, is great. And the cookbook is also great. It is the most popular restaurant in Venice Beach, and it is well-deserved. What, what other cookbooks do we have in our collection that fit the bill? We have one called Huckleberry, which is breakfast and brunch recipes. Very decadent. Not, they're not necessarily healthy, but really good. And that's a, another popular restaurant in Venice Beach. Yeah. Uh, it, ironically, walking distance from Jelena. Exactly. And I've, everything I've tried has been great. Uh, and then Sarah Beth's, which is a popular breakfast uh, restaurant. There's a series of restaurants in New York City, and I've been to a couple times all over Manhattan. And her jams are found here in Toronto, at um, now in supermarkets. It used to be specialty stores. Now it's everywhere. But she has a cookbook, and uh, I've also found that her recipes are good as well. Even the jams you can make at home. So just uh, some that were fun, both you know, the, the restaurants are good, and then the cookbooks are also good. Okay, so what if you don't have a recipe or, or the restaurant really isn't being cooperative? What would be your next step? Now, some people are very good at detecting the components of a dish. I, I, you know, I'm pretty good. I know our kids have said I you know, that they can detect there's coriander in here or there's cumin or there's this or that and other people may not be able to do that so if you do have that skill you know you have whether it's your palate or knowing ingredients uh then it's going to be easier but if you if you don't you know and you want to try it at home and you don't actually have the recipe you can always ask so you can ask your server uh, what's in this dish or it's on the menu. You know, it's is it lemon? Is there a spice? Which herb is it? And they will tell you so that if you you have some baseline ingredients that you could put together to figure out how to recreate the dish yourself if you're willing to experiment. Yeah, usually there's like a secret ingredient that like maybe you're not picking up, but you might be able to find out by asking a simple in question, a question like do I taste blah 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 in this recipe? You'll probably get the answer. Find they're usually willing to share that, you know. In another example, we there was a salad which I loved at Bar Isabel, which is a great Spanish restaurant in Toronto, and they called it the vegan no-show salad because yep. there was somebody who was vegan who asked for a vegan dish and then didn't show up at the restaurant, but they liked the salad so much that they kept it on the menu. Yep. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> I also liked it so much when I went there that I asked them, I called them and said, what's in that salad? Uh, what are the ingredients? And they told me, oh, it's Brussels sprouts and it's kale and it's pomegranates and it's this vinegar. And and that, for me, that was enough to recreate the salad myself. And I've made it many times. And I can customize it, of course, because it doesn't really matter. I'm not, I, I'm not serving it to the public. Uh, if I like this or I like that, I, I can do that. But I have successfully recreated the vegan no-show salad based on calling the restaurant and asking for the ingredients. Where do, where do you start when you're trying to figure out a, a recipe? Well, you start with what's different about it. You yeah. know, if it's a steak, let's say, and there's a sauce on it, well, you don't really need to ask too much about the steak because you're going to know what cut of steak it is and you can probably even know how it was cooked. But 
maybe it's the sauce that makes it so special that you know kicks it up a notch and then that's where you say oh, are there shallots is it cream is there a liqueur like what is it is it a wine sauce and then you could either ask the restaurant or google or look at one of your cookbooks to see how how i might make that sauce to try it so because not everything is going to be complicated but at the same time um, certain things you just may not have i mean we went for dinner to mamakis recently and they had this really great carrot dish yeah. uh, as a side these roasted carrots in with yogurt and it seemed very simple we asked what was uh we asked what was in the dish and the server told us that the carrots were made sous vide but that they had orange and cardamom i think I can't, I, now I can't even remember. Yeah, no, it was, it was orange and cardamom, but I, in a million years, I wouldn't have picked those two out. For, for, it didn't taste like that, but it tasted delicious. Right. Now, we don't have a sous vide machine, so we're not going to make the carrots that way. But now that I know the spices, I could grill or roast carrots, and I could make uh, thick yogurt to go with it. So I could somewhat recreate that dish if I wanted to. And it might not taste exactly the same as mamakas, but it would still be good. Okay, sometimes uh, we're on holiday and we just kind of want to recreate the spirit uh, of what we've eaten. So maybe you could sort of explain some of the cookbooks sort of related to some of our travels that you think translates well. Yes, well, we've been to Italy a few times and I I really like the cookbooks that I have that that are based on the cuisine that we had in Italy because that is one of my favorite cuisines. Yep. So we have uh, Foods of Southern Italy, recently La Dolce e Vita, which is Italian desserts. Both those books have authentic recipes that can be made here in Toronto, um, but will evoke the, um, you know, the food that we had in Italy, even if we don't have all the same amazing ingredients that, that they had. Right. And, and your uh, review of La Dolce Vitae is actually going to be in the March-April issue of the magazine for people who are interested. That's right. And I've made a ton of things. Yeah. And like I've gone a little bit crazy making desserts from this cookbook. And it's been easy. And just the taste is authentic, whether it's coffee, chocolate, you know, fruit, ricotta. It's, everything is just really good. And, and I could make it here. You know, like it was... I'm not sitting in southern Italy, but it was really good. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. That was Naomi Bussin. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the power of boundaries on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
Intercon guides and mentors people to work through seemingly unbreakable barriers, whether it be creating quantum leaps in their business or exceeding personal goals. She helps people challenge the thoughts and beliefs that are holding them back. Then through extensive work, those thoughts and beliefs are replaced with ones which help supercharge her client's growth. As a peak performance coach and registered psychotherapist inactive, Hina has been a student of the mind, human behavior, and human potential for almost two decades. She's also a familiar face in the media and is called on as an expert for a number of television programs, podcasts, and delivers keynote presentations and training to entrepreneurs, organizations, and teams. And for more information, you can always visit hinacon.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing very well today. So today we're going to talk about boundaries, but we're not talking Ooh. about like property lot lines and neighbors, you know, neighbors fighting. We're talking, I guess, about personal boundaries, right? That's absolutely right. Why do people have difficulties with their boundaries? You know, I think it's because of the way that many of us were raised. We were raised with the idea of putting other people first, what they need first, and that we've been praised in that as well. Like, oh, that person is so nice. Even things around work, Jamie, it could even be like, oh, look, they stay so late. They're here first thing, you know, or that person, my goodness, she's always available, always available. I can call her at any time and she will drop what she's doing to be, you know, to come and help me out. That person that you could always call, bless their heart, when, when you need to move. And then let me just tell you, I'm not that person. Yeah, I was going to say, this is, this, is, <laughs> this is not me either. But yeah, I know those people exist. God bless them. We do need them, right? You know, We, we do need them. And so it's, it's because we've been praised for putting other people first, for not having boundaries. And so it can feel like, my gosh, if I start to have boundaries, what will people think? They may not like me because they're used to me being a certain way. And we find that we have difficulty with boundaries in our personal life and our professional life. In your experience, is this more of an issue for females? Yes, I would say in my experience it is because we've been taught from a very young age that this is something that makes us a good girl. Yeah. It also feeds into people pleasing. Of course. As well. And so this is these are this is a narrative that we have grown up with. So absolutely I do have to say I find it more with women that we see that have an issue with setting boundaries because we're worried about the pushback. You can even see it in emails, like when you have to say no to something. Many times, some women will use a lot of, um, you know, we'll, we'll try to pepper it. We want to give it as gently as possible. And yeah. you'll receive something from a male counterpart, and it's pretty much like, no, exactly. not available, right? But we're apologetic as we're giving a boundary. I think it also comes out in certain careers, you know, like if you're in the service industry, you know, you, you kind of, you feel like the client relationship is, it's really hard to say no to clients. And, and particularly in North America, I think the Americans do it more than we do as Canadians. They say yes first, almost automatically. Like if you go in, if you ask an American whether they want to bid on a project or they want to do something, their immediate answer is yes, we can do this, whether they can or they can't. Absolutely. And then when we take that further, Jamie, it's then that person, let's, let's say that's just like, yes, and that's the culture of the organization. Now the employees are expected to follow that line as well. For sure. And so this is why if that's the culture of the company, it's difficult for employees, or they may find it difficult to put up boundaries because they feel they could be risking um, their employment. 
So how do you know when you need to put in boundaries, if, if all this is true? If we're being socialized to not have boundaries, how do you know when to yeah. put them in? Well, when you feel drained. When you start to feel drained and resentful, that's a really big sign that you need to put in some boundaries. When you find that things that you desire to do, your goals, your own work, your relationships are put to the back burner because you're so focused on doing what everybody else wants you to do, that's when you need to put in boundaries. When you find that you're not focused and on what you're trying to create in the world, but instead you're getting pulled into everyone else's agendas, that's when you need to start to put in boundaries. So you actually want to do this before we get to the resentment and anger phase, if you're able to, but sometimes that's what it takes. Like you're just exhausted and you can't do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, that last little tidbit there, I think is really crucial. Like I never deal with anything when I'm emotional, because the responses I get and my behavior actually doesn't, I, I don't get good results. Let's put it this way. I, I, I don't try and engage with people if I have issues with them when I'm upset. I kind of wait for a quieter moment. That's one of the things I've learned in, in, my, in my old age. Um, well, it's, it's brilliant because what you're doing is you're responding and not reacting. Exactly. And, and it, that's a huge difference. And, and, you know, selfishly, it allows you to set the agenda, right? If, if you are responding, you're already on somebody else's battlefield, is my view. So uh, this is such a great point that you've made, Jamie, because sometimes in the not responding is a boundary or not responding, you know, within the two minutes of receiving that text or that email and saying, I'm going to look at that later. Right now, I'm focused on my projects. That is a boundary. So even setting boundaries can show up in many different ways. So, you know, if we're if we're trying to exercise our boundaries, what do you do if you get pushback? So let's say you are trying to set those boundaries, but somebody's saying, uh, no, sorry, I still need you to do this. What do you do? I know. Or someone's like, I don't really, I'm not enjoying this version of you. Yeah, exactly. Where's the person that was cooperative and helpful? I want that person back. Yeah. What do you do? That's exactly it. So first of all, you have to change the definition for yourself of what cooperative and helpful is because those words can really stink. Yeah. And and it can affect your self-esteem like, oh my gosh, I'm not being a, night per- a nice person. They don't like me, that sort of thing. So you are going to get pushback. Of course you're going to get pushback. The way that you've been has been working for other people for so long. And this version of you may not work for them. And that's okay. So the one thing is that you have to be okay with the fact that not everybody is going to get on board with the new you, with the way that you're showing up, which is why you have to get clear on your boundaries and why you are creating them for yourself so that you can have confidence in your decision. But I'm going to tell you something else. There are going to be some people that are going to be watching you and they're going to be so impressed. They are going to be so inspired and they're going to feel like, damn, I wish I could do that. Or I didn't even know we could do that. I didn't even know we could stop at this time and say, okay, I'm I'm going off to do something else now. I didn't realize that was an option. So at the same time that some people may give you pushback and may not like this version of you, there's going to be others that are going to be inspired and impressed by it. And here's the kicker. Neither of those matter. I was going to say, it's the internal, it's knowing yourself that you've set your boundaries appropriately that I think is really the key. Am I I right about that? 
That's right. It's knowing yourself, what you're available for and what you're not available for. I use this language sometimes a lot and my clients love it when it's like, I'm not available for that. I'm not available for that. And Jamie, again, it's like boundaries we sometimes think about with our time, often because sometimes people are asking us to do things and it's affecting us staying late at work or dropping things to attend to something. But it's also boundaries and conversations. Yep. Boundaries, it's like I'm not having these low-level conversations. I'm not getting involved in that right now. Like I even have a boundary to what I will absorb, even in conversation. I love you, but I'm not going to gossip about that person. I suspect they're doing the best they can. So, again, it's, when we think about boundaries, I really want people to start to expand what that means for them and know that it can be in conversations, it can be in their time. It can be on how they are showing up and how long they will stay with something, when they will exit something, and that you're allowed to change your mind and your boundaries are allowed to change as well. That makes sense. Now, some people, if they're asserting themselves in this way, they may feel guilty about it. You know what I mean? Like they may feel, oh my gosh, am, am I being selfish? Am I being narcissistic by asserting these boundaries? What would you say to them? You know, one of the things that Dr. Gabor Mate, a Canadian psychiatrist, has said that always stayed with me is that the best gift you can give your children is your own happiness. And I think about that often. I don't think it has to do with the best gift you can give your own children. I think it's the best gift we can give to our community, our workplace. And so what I remember and is that if I am creating boundaries that are healthy for me, even though the other person may not see it right away, it is in the best interest of everybody around me. And the pushback that I get, either externally or internally, my own contradictory feelings, because I'm stepping into a new version of myself, is just an opportunity for me to fine-tune this new way of being as opposed to abandoning the new way of being. Sometimes we interpret the guilt internally or the pushback somebody is giving us as, oh, I guess this is not the right thing to do. Right. And I would just encourage people rather to think about it as, okay, this is new for me and I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. So it is natural that I have mixed feelings about it. And it's a process, right? Like uh, those people who may be put off by it, they, they may come around, right? They, they may I see, they th- do. you know, they'll see you asserting yourself and, and actually have more respect uh, for, for you and asserting yourself or find out more about you and, um, you know, what you're really about by asserting who you are. And, and I think it kind of requires you to say, you know, I may not care if not everybody loves the new me because uh, it, it doesn't matter. Like they'll grow to love me because they loved me before, you know? They, a hundred percent. And what I would say Jamie, is that this is where we have to be careful that we're not making up stories because we don't know what someone else is thinking. True. And you're right. They may be watching and they may be thinking like, actually, I love that you did this. And they will come around. So we want to be careful that we're not making up stories about what people are thinking. Great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. Always a pleasure. That was Hinnacon. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Stephanie Kirsta, Tracy Sograti, Naomi Bussin, and Hina Khan. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. 
You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.